0: That example on gold was very exciting because I knew I was going to make a lot of money very quickly, and that's a warning sign if you're getting excitement out of investing.
1: Everyone, welcome to the Where Accountants Go podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA, and your host for this very show. Well, hey, if you have ever listened to our show and thought, "I wish they had a guest on this topic," or "I wish they had someone in this specific field," well, then today's show is really going to interest you. We frequently guest suggestions from our other guests, and in fact, we're very blessed in that area, frankly. But we also accept guest suggestions from our listeners, or from you. If you didn't realize that, today's show is really going to pique your interest. For today, we have Alan Roth in the Colorado area on the program, and he has a unique financial planning business that he's going to tell us about, although he started out like many of us in accounting, even becoming a CPA early on in his career, and Alan was suggested by one of our listeners. Frankly, after I looked up his background, I couldn't resist but see if he would come on the show, and obviously he did. If you're sitting there and you have an idea for a future guest for the Where Accounts Go podcast, please reach out out to me online probably the easiest way is through linkedin you're welcome to email me of course as well but probably the easiest way is through linkedin i'm very easy to find just look up mark goldman next time you're on linkedin and i would love to hear from you and if you enjoy this interview with alan roth today make sure you leave us a rating in your podcast app we also love when we get ratings. It helps other people find the show and and judge whether or not it would be good for themselves. So please do take the time to leave us a rating. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. Here's Alan Roth. Well, hello, Alan.
2: Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. No
2: problem. Well, for the audience, today we have a guest on the show that actually came from you, the audience. I'm always open to guest suggestions, and one of our listeners, actually Ravi in the D.C. area, suggested that I invite Alan Roth on the program. And once I did a little research, I absolutely couldn't resist trying to get him on the show. We've had a few accountants that have turned financial planning professionals on the podcast before, but I figured anyone that named their website daretobedull.com dot com had to be a little bit of a character. So I wanted to see if Alan would come on the program and obviously he graciously accepted the invite. Well Alan, I definitely do want to get into what you do now, you know, your business wealth logic. But before we do that I think it's important that the audience understands exactly where you came from and and how you got to where you are today. What led you to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place?
0: Well, I had a very short career in accounting, but in high school, as a junior in high school, my father sent me to the Stevens Institute of Technology to take a two-day aptitude and psychological testing to see what I should be in my career. And I hated English foreign languages, I loved numbers, and lo and behold, it came out and said I should be an accountant. Wow. (laughs) That was my aptitude. That was where I should go.
2: Okay. That's interesting. And then it ended up changing later on. hmm, That probably says something about that test. (laughs) I'm curious, was financial planner even an option on there?
0: (laughs) Probably not. Okay. And certainly not in the way it is, you know, today. Financial planning is very different than it was back then. Oh, good point.
2: Okay. You were destined to at least start in accounting. Was it at that point forward that you were determined to become an accountant or pursue that?
0: Well, I I did a national search for my undergrad. I wanted to go to the school number one in my field, and University of Colorado at Boulder was the number one party school in the country. So that's why I chose that and majored in accounting. And... Kind of an early warning sign was my only C in college was the all important intermediate accounting. What I didn't realize that at that point accounting was more memorization of FASBs and things like that stuff that I absolutely hated. But I managed to get through and get my degree in accounting from University of Colorado.
2: Okay, what was your first job like in accounting? Now, where did where did you start? How did you get that job?
0: Well, you know, I interviewed at that point all of the. Huh the eight big eight firms, and you don't don't mind me copying Inspector Gadget, your last guest, but I had the exact same experience. I got seven offers with the big eight firms, and the one I didn't get the offer from was Arthur Anderson, the one that's now out of business. But my experience at Pete Mark, an absolutely great firm. I loved the firm, but what I was doing was ticking and tying and footing and crossing and learning how to use a tin key I was bored to death. It wasn't Pete Marwick's fault, now KPMG, but it was not my calling in life. And I don't mean to brag, but I was the worst CPA in America. I, I passed the CPA exam with the minimum 475, so I'm a member of the 300 club.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm sure I've heard that before, but not recently. That's, that's pretty funny.
0: <laughs> at, at the time I took the test, you couldn't even use a calculator.
2: Okay. Wow. Four seventy-five. So, hey, you you, you passed.
0: <laughs> I did not overstudy one bit.
2: I'm curious, how long did you stay with P. Marwick?
0: Two years, enough time to get my CPA license. Okay. Which I still have, by the way. So I, I still consider it very valuable.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like barely squeaked by and got it, so you definitely want to hold on to it.
0: <laughs> it was traumatic sitting down for, I think it was, what, two and a half days back then?
2: Uh, yes. Yes, it was. Two and a half days. And if your testing situation was like mine, you had to bring things in in a clear bag so they could see what you had with you and no calculators and and stuff like that. It was pretty crazy.
0: (laughs) Uh, Other credentials are a whole lot easier. It took me about a month to get a CFP license and almost a week to get a real estate license.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. So what did you do after Pete Marwick?
0: I went back to uh, grad school to get my MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg Graduate School of Management. And I still remember my first day of class in corporate finance. The professor asked, raise your hand if you're a CPA. And... Several of us raised our hands, you know, very proudly. I thought he was going to say, you're going to find this class really easy. And his answer was, you're going to have the hardest time with this class because it has nothing to do with accounting. And I think he was wrong, by the way. To me, finance was planning the future. Accounting was scoring the past. And what I was doing at Pete Marwick was auditing, which was checking on the accuracy of the scoring of the past.
2: Yeah, I think I would be on your side there. I, I'm not sure that the, the professor had the right take on that, for sure. For your, sh- there's also the argument that you know if you don't know history, you're
0: destined to repeat it. So there's probably some value there too. <laughs> yeah.
2: So when did you get into financial planning?
0: Well, I did almost 20 years of corporate finance first. So, you know, after I graduated business school, I did corporate finance and I did consulting at McKinsey and Company. That's the firm that Pete Buttigieg is criticized for working for, which was a wonderful firm, by the way. I got to travel the world doing consulting with large corporations. And then I went to work for companies like Exxon, one of the Baby Bells, Pacific Telesis Group, and then in healthcare, Kaiser Permanente and Anthem, and started as an analyst. I was a really good analyst. And because I was a good analyst, I got promoted into management, where I got to do some analysis and some management of the analysis. And then I got promoted into being divisional CFOs of the companies. And then I was doing no analysis and all people management, and that wasn't my... Skill set.
2: Okay. Now, yeah, I'm curious before, before we move forward from there, what are your thoughts on how having the CPA certificate earlier in your career may have benefited you getting into those analytical roles and, particularly, I guess, being selected? for some of the CFO roles?
0: Well, it helped in a couple of ways. I consider it, even though it was not my calling in life, incredibly valuable and and still valuable today. All of my analysis, what was done with debits and credits, income statements, balance sheets, and the all-important cash flow statement to build the rigor in, it gave me a lot of credibility as a CPA, et cetera. So it was incredibly valuable. Okay. Even though I was lousy at it. And in every job interview, I said, I'm really lousy at it.
2: (laughs) I think you're being too hard on yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I challenge anyone to say they were a worse CPA than me.
2: (laughs) I just had to ask, because I've heard the argument before that, well, you know, I'm going into finance, so that's not going to benefit me. And I think attaining any certification is beneficial, and definitely, definitely the CPA. So... So you were saying that the divisional CFO roles took you into areas that, that you weren't comfortable with or weren't good at. I, I think it was personnel management. Is that is that what you're relating
0: to? Well, I would have large staffs. I would have audit accounting, payables, billables, and financial planning and all that stuff under me. And a lot of it was somebody not getting along with somebody and stuff like that. And that really wasn't my skill set. I remember starting as a grunt and thinking, gosh, if only I could be a manager, I would be so happy. And then as a manager, well, if, if only I was an officer, I would be so happy. And then as an officer, I can't wait till I'm financially independent and don't have to work any longer.
2: <laughs> it's interesting how that works. How long was it before you decided to make that change and to start your own company? Not to make the change about being financially
0: independent. I, that's a different, uh,
2: <laughs> a different story, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Well, it was really at age forty. I had my midlife crisis. My wife and I had a son later in life, and that's when I decided to try to find myself. I got off of the corporate career track working out in uh, California for what's now Anthem, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and did what anyone would insanely do moved back to Colorado, put a lowball offer on a house in Aspen, and the next thing I knew, we were moving out there. And sometimes a stupid move can work out greatly because a couple of years later, we sold the house for about twice what we bought it for. I didn't want my son growing up thinking, we're poor, aren't we? Every All my other friends, their dads own at least one jet, some two. We don't even own one. Wow. So we moved to Colorado Springs, only about 100 miles away, but a very different place.
2: Okay. <laughs> so about when did you start Wealth Logic?
0: It was about 17 years ago. and I was doing consulting in the meantime while living in Aspen, and there were two problems that just really fascinated me. One was healthcare financing you know we spend twice as much per capita as any other country in healthcare financing and the other was investing how simple investing was and how corporations do it how we did it in our, our pensions etc versus how individuals did it with very expensive products and paying people a percentage of assets to quote manage the investments and i decided the first one was too political healthcare and too hard to solve by the way so i decided to start an hourly financial planning firm
2: Okay, so you still have an hourly model?
0: Strictly hourly. Interesting. There are some institutional clients where I do some quarterly reports on, but the vast majority of it is hourly. None of it is percentage of assets and none of it is commission.
2: Okay.
0: I argue that every profession on earth is fee-for-service. Why should financial planning be different?
2: Okay. Oh, my gosh, that is intriguing that you're you're not doing any... Percentage of assets work?
0: Never have, never will. Hmm.
2: What were some of the challenges like? So, I mean, since you started from the beginning that way, I'm curious, I mean, did it just take off immediately or what were some of the challenges like in the early days?
0: Gosh, no. <laughs> my <laughs> first year as a financial planner, my total revenue was $500. Oh, wow. Okay. So I took a real, but that time, by the way, I was very thrifty lived way below my means, made good salaries and bonuses and stock options and things like that. So I didn't have to make a lot of money, but it was still very hard on my ego. I was the all-important corporate finance officer where people worked to get to me to trying to call people and not getting calls returned and all that. So it was hard on the ego at first, but that also gave me a lot of time on my hands to start doing things like I was asked by the local business journal to write a column. We can't pay you, but we'd really appreciate it. And I started uh, teaching at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs and and it ended up that all of those things really had a lot of synergies. Now, for the last decade, I've had a wait list of clients. I do a one-and-done sort of financial plan, charging $450 an hour. So it was anything but an instant success, but eventually it caught on.
2: Okay. Well, I'm curious, what was the turning point for you? Or was it just gradual all the way through? Or what, what, Is there anything you can... Yeah. What was the turning point for you where, where the business just started to take off?
0: Well, it was fairly gradual until the 2008, 2009 um, financial collapse. And then people that you know, they were told their advisors, their portfolio was bulletproof, can't go down. We've got assets that went up. The last time stocks plunged like REITs and precious metals and mining, you know, that did horrible during the second crash that people were like, oh my gosh, what we're doing isn't working. So ever since then, I've I've had a wait list of clients or even sometimes on my website, I'll say, please don't submit a profile until I do some catching up. Interesting. But that was probably the biggest turning point. That and as I started writing nationally and was covered, you know, mentioned in other articles and such, that helped a lot too. And then finally, because the model is so different. A lot of clients are like, oh my gosh, you know, will you do one for my father? Will you do one for my son? I got to tell my neighbor. So as a very differentiated model, it was much easier to get new clients. And again, I do a one and done. I'm not trying to charge them on an ongoing basis.
2: Okay. So you you do a financial plan for a customer and then unless they contact you back for some question or revision, then do you have contact with them later on?
0: Well, I have a monthly newsletter that people can subscribe to, and I tell them that's the easiest way to keep in touch with my latest thoughts and the like. But once we develop the plan, the hard part is getting them from complexity to simplicity. I always said investing is simple. I never said taxes were. So the analysis of what taxes you have to pay to get from A to B is rather difficult. But once we get them there, then they can have rules going forward. So they don't need to come back and keep paying me.
2: Okay. So you have a waiting list at this point of customers. (laughs) That's quite a statement to say that you sort of shut down your website, not shut it down, but you ask people not to apply. That's, wow, that's intriguing. I guess, what does your career life look like now? Are you working full time or have you started to slow that down? How do you spend your time? This is really interesting.
0: I'm probably working in the neighborhood of 55, 60 hours a week, but I love what I do. So I, I don't really consider it work. And I do a lot of writing as well. I write for AARP, the $25 million circulation um, magazine, financial planning magazine, advisor perspectives, ETF.com. Those are all paid gigs. So it's kind of a lot of fun.
2: Uh, you know, as long as you mentioning that, I did want to ask you about it because honestly, I was probably slightly jealous. I noticed that you, you've you contributed to Wall Street Journal, Money Magazine, uh, you know, mentioned AARP now. I understand you know given the reputation you have now for your work how that would pay but how did you get started as a contributor to those magazines or those publications
0: yeah it wasn't intentional I sometimes I'll go to some journalism um, events and the like and I always consider myself an accidental Journalist. So it all started when the local business journal here in Colorado Springs asked me to write a piece. I said, yeah, I'll do once a month and do that for a few months and see how that goes. Well, my very first piece was on a money magazine article of a little over a year ago, where they went and asked 24 of the top money managers with the longest track record, successful track record, what their stock picks were. And I looked at those stock picks and looked at how they did over the next year, incredibly underperforming the index. And that was my very first article. And within a couple of months, I got noticed by Money Magazine, and they asked me to write. It wasn't actually under my name. It was about a three-year column called The Mole. It was a financial planner divulges some inside secrets of the financial planning industry. So I did that for about three years. And then the the managing editor, Eric Schurenberg, who's still a very good friend of mine, went over to CBS Money Watch, and I went over with him and started writing columns under my own name. And then he went over to AARP, and I also went with him. He's now president of the company that owns Inc. and Fast Company. We're still very good friends, but obviously what his articles cover aren't in my area of expertise. So a lot of it was just plain sheer luck. But you know, as an hourly advisor, it gave me the freedom to write very differently, like why should people pay a percentage of assets? A mortgage is the inverse of a bond. Especially, by the way, under the new tax law, you have to pay interest on your bonds unless you take some credit risk with munis but the new tax law makes it a lot harder to deduct all or even any of the mortgage interest. So it was a voice that was very different than most other people. And then as a practicing financial planner, I also could differentiate versus a financial journalist. I would get to see all this stuff. And writing is therapy for me. Remember I said I hated writing, which is on that aptitude test why I went into accounting. I still don't like writing, but it's almost therapy for me. And thank gosh, I have really good
2: editors. (laughs) I can relate to that. Sometimes just getting your thoughts down on paper is therapeutic for sure. (laughs) Yeah, thank God for good editors. (laughs) So what does success look like? you going forward? Because it sounds like you have the opportunity for more business than than you can handle or maybe you want to handle. I'm not sure. If we were talking two or three years from now, what are you thinking your business might look like or what would you hope it would look like?
0: Well, I've done a lot of thinking. Should I take the practice nationally? I've had lots of people come to me saying, I could be your office in New York, et cetera. And and my clients are nationally scattered, very few in Colorado, actually, far more in States like New York and California, where more people and wealthier people live. So I thought about doing that. And the two reasons I decided not to is one, the regulatory compliance is just amazing if you use that model. But even more importantly, I didn't want to repeat the mistakes of earlier in my career, where I was a really good analyst and was switched to managing people and the like. So if I did build the practice nationally, I would be doing less of the analysis, less of the client work and I'm far more of the people management and all of that. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I really don't plan to change my model. I like what I do. I'm happy. Dying the richest person in the graveyard is not my goal. I do feel like I sold out. I I started the practice to help the common person and now at $450 an hour, I can only on a cost effective basis help very wealthy people. So I'd like maybe to start doing more pro bono work. There's a lot of lot of efforts to prevent financial fraud, but I also say there's a whole lot of completely legal fraud that goes along, such as annuities and the like, and do more work to educate people on stuff like that. My biggest pleasant surprise. When I started my practice, I had to explain what an index fund was. Today, there's more money in U.S. stock index funds than active funds. So that is my biggest pleasant surprise. And I'm happy that I contributed maybe 0.00001% towards that shift.
2: Hmm. (laughs) I'm curious, have you ever thought about taking on like an apprentice, you know, someone to teach your ways and then maybe they handle. I realize I'm borderline describing an employee, but yeah, someone to bring up in the business a little bit and then maybe they can handle some of the clients that you're not able to handle at $450 an hour, (laughs) you know, or that you don't have time for.
0: Well, there's a Garrett Financial Planning Network and I'm very close to them and they're mostly hourly. And I speak a lot at their conferences. I participate in lots of phone conversations. So I want to try to help people do that model. But again, I've decided not to hire employees or contractors, that sort of thing. I've decided not to go that model. But I'm happy to teach other people how to do what I'm doing.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, that leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask you a little bit. I've worked in the accounting employment space for a long time, and I have some friends that started as accountants and decided to go into financial planning and have done them very well. But I probably have seen far – well, not probably. I know I've seen far more people start in accounting, and then something changes with their job, and they decide they're going to try financial planning, and it does not work (laughs) for them. Frequently, I think that they're seeing that it's too much sales. Maybe it's the organization they got in with, but just it's not something that they're comfortable with or doesn't work out. What advice would you have for someone that's much earlier in their career and you know they have an accounting background and they're thinking about they're thinking that financial planning looks fun, <laughs> so they they want to give it a shot.
0: Well, I understand that. Financial planning can be very, very different things. You can get an insurance license and call yourself a financial planner, and that's sales. You can go to work for a big brokerage firm, and that is sales. I like to brag, and here I really am bragging, that I am the worst salesperson on the planet. So you know what I do is I have clients submit a profile before I'll even talk to them, and then I'll give them 20 minutes to give them my thoughts without charging them. And it's not sales. In fact, it's usually here's what you're doing wrong and here's why you need to change and you know, giving them some value out of it. So, you know, my advice would be if you're going into financial planning, understand whether you're doing financial planning or sales and investing is really simple. So that's kind of the tax analysis is the hard part, getting from A to B, getting them into simple portfolios. Like I wrote a book, How a Second Grader Beat Wall Street. It's essentially three funds, a total U.S., total international, and total bond. But getting from A to B is very hard, and that tax and accounting experience is very valuable. So if you're going into... Financial planning at sales and I would have failed miserably working for a big brokerage firm or trying to sell annuities that I didn't believe in. But if you're going into true financial planning, then I would say stick with it. Like I said, my ego took a humongous hit when I started this. It was not easy, but persevere.
2: Well, thank you. That's a good distinction to make. Yeah, the different types of jobs
0: in that area. Thank you. When I teach a lot of students that come to me and, you know, XYZ brokerage firm or insurance company has come to me and I kind of like financial planning. do well, I think of that and I tell them that's not financial planning. That's a sales job. If you're comfortable in sales, that'll be great.
2: Yes. Yeah. Many of the positions are simply getting assets under management, which is sales. And then someone else is is doing some analysis somewhere.
0: Yeah. Or commissions where, and in both cases, you know, the sales presentation is given to them and they need to try to execute it, but they're not managing it. They're putting them in product.
2: Okay. Thank you. I think that's important. I feel
0: fairly passionate about this, as you can probably tell.
2: Yes, I can tell. (laughs) Definitely. Well, I have three questions I end every podcast with, but, but last thing before we get to those, because I am curious, given what you know now, if you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of advice, what do you think that might be?
0: I think it would probably be when you get out of bed in the morning and you're not excited about what you're doing, consider making some major changes. My corporate finance career was wonderful. I worked for wonderful people, wonderful companies. But it just wasn't my calling in life, much closer than when I started at Pete Marwick. But my advice would be, life is short, consider making change. Make smart change, but consider making change. I have a friend who had an accounting degree and bought two restaurants, and in a month he had them both closed, lost all of his life savings. So do it in a smart way.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Well, last three questions, and like I mentioned, the same questions I end every podcast with, I think it gives us a lot of consistency across the shows. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment?
0: Probably, well, definitely. Meeting and getting to know the late John C. Bogle, he was the founder of Vanguard, who changed the industry, who gave the common investor a fair shake. The low fee index funds stood up against uh, industry and really changed things. He was incredibly unpopular within the industry. And how I met him was an interesting story. I'm a networker, but I couldn't figure out how to network to meet Jack Bogle. So I sent him a blind letter and saying, gosh, I appreciate everything you've done. I'd love to meet you about a week later and get a handwritten note back. I'm coming to Colorado in a month. Let's get together. So for me, this was like meeting my favorite president, my favorite actor, my favorite rock star, all going into one. And that was right as I was starting my business. So that gave me a whole heck of a lot of confidence, to, as he would say, press on regardless. And over the years, I got to know him very well, talking to him two or three times a year. and um, I did some work behind the scenes for him. He helped me in, in many, many ways. So that was probably my, my proudest moment knowing him. And today, by the way, I'm on the board of the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. It's a volunteer board organization organization.
2: Wow. It's amazing what you can get if you just ask.
0: <laughs> yeah. Some of the blind letters I've sent to people like eating William Bernstein, very famous in the uh, financial industry. It doesn't always work. I sent a blind letter to Warren Buffett and never heard back, but it's amazing if you just try to reach out to people, how helpful people can be. And that's why I want to try to help others as well.
2: Well, second question, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way, and the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because really, that's how we learned.
0: Well, I think I told you, you already kind of asked one, and that was, I should have done what I loved a lot earlier, but I actually wrote a piece for AARP on my biggest money mistakes. (laughs) So do you mind if I go over one of those?
2: Yes, actually, we'd
0: love to hear that. <laughs> I used to know everything. So my parents gave me very generous on the $7,000 college graduation gift in 1980. And I just knew that gold you know, had to go up because fiat currency, deficits, etc. were printing all this money. Gold was sure to go up. So I put it all in gold. At least I didn't blow it with a vacation. But anyways, gold over the next, you know, what are we, 40 years doubled in price, meaning that it did not keep up with inflation. Had I heard of John Bogle and his S&P 500 index fund, I'd have made $400,000 more.
2: Oh, my gosh. Off (laughs) $7,000.
0: Yeah. And kind of the lesson is, it's amazing. This is a wonderful country. A lot of what I do is tell people, I don't know the future. We all think we know the future. Interest rates have to go up. Well, the top economists called the direction of interest rates correct 30% of the time over the last 40 years, less than a coin flip.
2: Was it just a lack of knowledge at the time? I'm curious. Or do you think that at the time you made a fair assessment and that given what you knew at the time, gold was an appropriate investment?
0: Well, people make these mistakes all the time. It's the same mistake that I make. And a lot of people do it because they don't like, you know, one president or the other president. I've written pieces on people that made costly bets against America under Obama, people that made costly bets against America under Trump. So if you're going to beat the market time things well you have to know something the rest of the market doesn't already know so going back to 1980 i wasn't the only one that knew that fiat currency deficit etc my first job out of business school was with exxon a wonderful company by the way but there was no doubt in my mind that oil was going to be worth a hundred dollars a barrel because we were running out of reserves, we were using more oil than we were discovering. Emerging market countries were using more and more and more. And for a brief period of time, decades later, it did hit $100 a barrel. But again, if you're going to invest, you have to know something to beat the market. The rest of the market doesn't already know. And I'm a big believer. I am a market timer. Rebalancing is market timing. Okay. Well, so when drive. stocks go, people usually do just the opposite. My friend Dan Ariely wrote a predictably irrational. Um, people will buy stocks when stocks have had the longest bull market in history today and sell when it plunges. Sure. That is absolutely irrational. So I have people that come to me all the time with very, very sound logic, but that's already priced into the market.
2: Yeah, we're not as smart as we think we are sometimes.
0: <laughs> exactly. And if you want to ask me about the dare to be dull, I can tell you a little bit about that and just how hard rebalancing is.
2: I was curious about the name and I was going to leave that alone just I didn't know if it, it you know it is what it is. I love the name. But yeah, tell me how did you come up with the dare to be dull.com?
0: Well, that example on gold was very exciting because I knew I was going to make a lot of money very quickly. And that's a warning sign if you're getting excitement out of investing. Investing really is dull. Owning a total stock index fund over decades is not very exciting but it's also very hard. We've got to resist the, oh my gosh, I don't like this president, so I'm going to sell. I do like this president, so I'm going to buy. The amount of money we're printing, inflation has to go rampant, You know, not looking at the fact that Japan's been running humongous deficits and fighting deflation. So you have to be daring enough to resist all these things. And then you have to be daring enough to buy when the herd is selling and Reverse, which is not that easy. There's a video on the homepage of my website, daretobedull.com, that I'm very proud of. It was filmed two days before the market bottomed in March of '09, And I'm saying all the right things. Stocks are on sale. People sh- should be buying. Capitalism is going to survive. But I will tell you my own inner voice Was going, please let me be right. Please, please, please. It's very daring to buy, to go against the herd, to buy when the herd is selling and sell when the herd is buying. Again, to stick to an overall asset allocation. But investing in eight words is minimizing expenses and emotions, maximizing diversification and discipline. And by the way, dare to be dull. Dull is not the objective of this podcast. Just investing. Have an exciting life, but do your investing in a very dull, boring way.
2: Thank you. Thank you for making that that point. Well, last question, in the interest of time, I better get to this. What what's the best piece of advice that you have ever received?
0: Well, this is really old. I'm sure everyone has heard it, but I wish I had taken it earlier. And that is do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. I enjoy what I do. Do I have bad moments? Sure. But I enjoy it so much more than what I used to. So I would say, life is short, (laughs) have fun, enjoy it.
2: Beautiful. Well, Alan, thank you very much. If you wanted us to read just one of your articles now, what would that be and where would we find it?
0: Well, you can find it online. It's one that just got nominated for a business award, and it's in the AARP Bulletin back in October of last year, and it's four new rules to take control of your financial future. Can I just real briefly go over a couple of the key lessons
2: Yes, actually, I'm I'm curious what the four new rules are.
0: (laughs) Well, it's defining wealth. Wealth is not a dollar amount. You can have $10 million but need $5 million a year to live on and you've got two years worth of financial freedom. If you have $500,000 but you only need $25,000 above Social Security, you're financially free. You're much richer. And the best way to get wealthier is to cut your spending. There's lots of things that we spend money on that don't bring us happiness. Stuff doesn't bring us happiness experiences bring us happiness. Delaying social security. Think of it as buying the best inflation-adjusted annuity on the planet. And then finally, there are many rules that need to be broken and such. But that, as a recent article, I think is very important. And of course, I'm very proud of my book. It's 10 years old now, but it's more valuable today, How a Second Grader Beat Wall Street. And the reason why it's more valuable today is it worked over the next 10 years. It's not what people usually do, write a book today, what worked over the last 10 years. (laughs)
2: That's a good point. It's been proven correct at this point.
0: (laughs) People ask me why I haven't written another book, and I've answered because I blew my wad with that one. I have nothing really that much new to say. And it got great reviews by New York Times Associated Press, and it still sells relatively well, even though it's a decade old.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you again for spending the time with us. At $450 an hour, I feel like I'm very fortunate to have you on the phone, so thank you very much.
0: Well, I spent nine hours preparing for it, so you're going to get a bill for 10 hours. Okay, bad joke. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Beautiful. I love it.
0: It's been my pleasure.
2: No problem. Thank you so much.
1: Well that was our interview with Alan Roth. You could tell he really enjoys what he does. I appreciated the the educational discussion that we had about financial investing and Honestly, you have to admit, Alan's a humorous guy. It was a fun conversation to have. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found value in this episode, please don't forget to rate us. We love to get ratings. It helps other people find us, and sincerely, it just helps us to know if we're on the right track. So, please, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave us a rating in your podcast app, whatever that app may be. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for the Where Accountants Go podcast, and we We will see everyone next week, there's more to come.